This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. As someone who cares for a parent with Alzheimer's, I have become a strange mixture of obsessed and detached in my curiosity about how the mind works and how it ceases working, or perhaps just changes. As a seasoned carer, it's been 10 years since mama's diagnosis, there is one piece of advice I pass to anyone in the early days of facing this task. Do not fast forward in your head to what you think will happen. Alzheimer's patients are mercurial. It is primarily you that can create a negative feedback loop. The progress of this disease or anything else is not always linear. Deal with what is going on without expecting the next awful thing. Do not try to predict the future. Naturally, I was intrigued when a review copy of The Expectation Effect was put in my hand by a good friend. I really loved the author, David Robson's first book, The Intelligence Trap, even though it felt at times uncomfortably close to the bone, or perhaps because of it. And he had just won a pair of prestigious awards for his writings on misinformation during the COVID pandemic. I am thrilled that he's with me today to discuss the expectation effect. Welcome to the bunker, David Robson. Uh, thanks so much for having me. David, I will start with a confession of the expectation effect that I had to battle when I started the book. Hmm. The subject and appearance placed it firmly in the section of my mind's library entitled Woo Woo Self-Help. Two pages in, I knew that was not the case. When When I encountered the first footnote, actually, that referred to a proper scientific study. But can you tell our listeners why this is not in that milieu? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like you uh, rightly say, there's a lot of kind of pseudoscience out there that looks at, um, that tries to claim that kind of positive thinking can solve like every element of your life um, or all of your kind of problems. You know, The Secret by uh, Rhonda Byrne would be the classic example of that, Mm. where she kind of claims you can, um, I don't know, like visualize yourself being incredibly rich and then that money will just come to you. I mean, this is not that at all. It's all based on um, you know, good scientific studies, like really robust research. You know, I've, I've cited something like 450 scientific studies within this book. Um, so it's really just taking a realistic look at the role our expectations play in our lives and in what ways we are kind of shaped by these self-fulfilling prophecies. And yeah, I think it's really kind of 
showing us the, some of the limits of positive thinking, but also the ways that actually our beliefs can uh, shape our health and happiness and productivity in some unexpected ways. Yes, I think my impression of the book as a totality, it, uh, aside from being just a fascinating collection of case studies, which on its own would have made it incredibly readable, um, it's also that it doesn't um, promise or explore sort of huge changes, but rather the effect that small drip, drip, drip um, negativity can have in your overall enjoyment of life. What is the man-in-a-pub version of the expectation effect? What, what is it in brief? How do you describe it to your friends when you say you have a book coming out? So um, I would say that maybe the best example of the expectation effect is the placebo effect in medicine, um, which mm. is quite famous now. Um, you know, that's the idea that if you believe that a, um, a kind of drug that you're taking will have a biological effect, that actually sometimes it can have those physiological effects, mm. even if you're taking this kind of dummy pill. Um, you know, if you're taking a placebo painkiller, your brain actually produces opioids um, that can actually help you to um, feel real pain relief, not just a kind of imagined pain relief. Um, and fascinatingly, you also talk about the nocebo effect, which most people will be less familiar with. Right, that's, yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of flip side of the placebo effect. So in medicine, this has been explored with um, kind of drug side effects that often come from our expectations of feelings of nausea or headaches. Um, and then those symptoms kind of manifest in our bodies um, just from this kind of fear and concern and expectation that we're kind of going to feel some kind of physical discomfort. So I'd say, you know, that's really well established. And then what the kind of most cutting edge research from the last 10 years has shown is that actually we experience similar effects throughout our lives, not just when we're in hospital or receiving medical treatment, but when we're kind of working out, when we're on a weight-reducing diet, um, when we've experienced sleep loss, you know, um, and even actually like our kind of long-term beliefs about ageing can actually produce a kind of placebo or nocebo effect in some way. So, mm. you know, it can affect kind of how you experience old age with real physiological changes. So it's got this really strong scientific basis. And then actually you can see that it's really powerful um, really in whatever we're trying to achieve in our life. I, I will come to all the constituent elements that you mentioned because they're all very interesting. Um, you give a personal example, uh, experiencing migraines while on antidepressants. Mm. And what I wanted to know was, what if your migraine had been a real side effect? Presumably it is listed as a side effect because it has been a side effect for some people in the control group of the pharmaceutical company that, that tested the drug. How long do you try to fight something with resetting expectations before taking a painkiller, I guess is what I'm asking. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I would say in this case for the drugs I was taking, which were just a very common antidepressant pill, um, when you compare the people in the clinical trials taking the placebo pills and the actual pills, um, what you see is that the 
a number of people experiencing this side effect, the headaches, is almost identical. So there's maybe just a, a you know um, a fraction of a percentage of people who are experiencing the biological effects of yeah. the drug itself. Um, so you know it's very unlikely that I was actually um, kind of experiencing the kind of real thing, as you could call it. But um, but I yeah. would say you know we shouldn't. Um, we should never discount that possibility, and that would be that would be the worst outcome of my book for me. And I try to emphasise that throughout: is that you know sometimes you know an illness is a kind of real illness, obviously caused by things that are completely out of our control. But you can just leave your mind open to the possibility, and that's actually what happened to me when I was experiencing these um, bad mm. migraines as a result of my pills. It's not like I was trying to convince myself that it was kind of all in my mind. Yeah. I just realized that that was a possibility. And just by opening my mind to that possibility, I found that the headaches actually disappeared because I wasn't kind of falling into that kind of negative spiral of thinking where I was like uh, kind of catastrophizing the headache itself and feeling yeah. that that was some kind of, um, you know, that was actually causing like bad damage to my brain. I just kind of eased back from that and that was enough to relieve that symptom. Yeah, and, and I, I should note here that you know when I use the the shorthand "real," um, it's not to say that the you know the pain of a migraine that comes from an expectation effect is any less real to the person suffering it. It's just a, a my cack-handed way of uh, describing something that has a physiological cause to something that doesn't basically. Um, I am very, very interested in something you mentioned in um, the, uh, I think you call them the complaining good sleepers <laughs> versus the non-complaining poor sleepers. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, so, um, funnily enough, this describes me and my uh, boyfriend perfectly but um same so, here <laughs> right are you the, sorry just to clarify <laughs> before you, we go forward were you the complaining good sleeper or the non-complaining poor sleeper uh the non-complaining poor sleeper ah very good <laughs> yeah so i mean this is all about how we interpret sleep loss um and there are some people you know I think like me, who are um, non-complaining bad sleepers. So they actually, you know, can lay awake for a couple of hours a night with insomnia, but they just kind of feel quite chilled with that as a part of their life. And mm. they they kind of have the confidence that, you know, despite having that amount of sleep loss, you know, they they feel like they can function during the day and they know they have ways of coping with that. Um, the complaining good sleepers are the opposite so they actually sleep for like eight hours a day but even if they stay awake for like 15 minutes before dropping off they feel like they've had a lot of um sleep loss and insomnia and they're convinced that they're going to suffer from like a lot of fatigue the next day and what this scientific research shows is that that actually um becomes you know a self-fulfilling prophecy so strangely despite the objective measures of sleep it's the non-complaining bad sleepers who fare much better than the complaining good sleepers. It, 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 this is just incredibly funny to me <laughs> because I am exactly in the same position. And when your partner complains that they've had a bad night's sleep and you've spent a good three hours listening <laughs> to them snore peacefully, <laughs> it becomes quite grating after a while. Um <laughs> Everything can affect our expectations, um, even season. You give a, 
a terrific example of that very um, well-known Escher lithograph that shows either a, a bunny rabbit with the ears or a seagull with a beak, mm. depending on how you look at it. And you talk about how uh, people saw a bird if it was in the autumn and saw a bunny if it was around Easter, especially children. Mm. What was the strangest expectation effect you explored in the book, the thing that you found truly mind-blowing? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think the example you gave is so beautiful because it's, um, I think it shows how it's sort of like one of those early examples and like a really easy way to show how like um, our expectations are just kind of like the air we breathe. Like we're not even aware often of the kind of assumptions we're bringing to a situation, but that can radically change your kind of perception and then your behavior and your physiology. So I think that's a great um, kind of introduction to the expectation effect in general. I think the one that really shocks me is uh, the role of the nocebo effect in our mortality. Um, mm. So there is some like very telling evidence from longitudinal studies that showed that people who expect for whatever reason that they're at a high risk of cardiovascular disease are more likely to suffer heart attacks than people who don't expect to have cardiovascular disease. And that's even when you control for all of these other factors, you know, including their actual health status, their lifestyle, all of the things that should be predicting cardiovascular health. And it seems like that expectation of, of becoming ill creates this kind of um, low-level stress that can build throughout their life and almost doubles the their risk of having cardiovascular disease in the long term. So, okay. you know, it's really quite serious. And I think... You know, now there's some research looking at psychological therapies that might be able to help people to change those expectations. And, you know, especially if someone's already showing some signs of cardiovascular disease to kind of really target those patients um, in combination with, you know, lifestyle changes as well. But just to make sure that they're not suffering from a kind of needlessly bad expectation that's going to affect their health in mm. the long term. Mm. And and you also say there is some evidence that even the aging process is susceptible to this expectation effect. Uh, t tell us a little bit about that. Mm, that completely blew my mind. And it was actually one of the things that really prompted me to write the book. Um, you know, a lot of us from a very young age, from, you know, even early childhood, we absorb all of these kind of really negative assumptions about the aging process. You know, we think that as you get older, you kind of lose um, your mental faculties and that you become kind of more doddery or confused. Mm. Um, you know, like you just have to look at kind of greetings cards and you can see that, uh, you know, as people uh, reach kind of 60 or 70, all of the cards are just like these jokes about like disability, <laughs> essentially. And, you know, people accept it because it's just part of our culture and it's almost like it's invisible because it's part of our culture. Like we don't realise... It's such, a, such an unkindness, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. To ourselves, yeah. I mean. Absolutely. You know, it's unkind to other people. It's unkind to ourselves. It's um, really, you know, quite a damaging attitude because actually old age can come with lots of benefits too, like the accumulated wisdom that you have. Like retirement can often be a fantastic opportunity for people to kind of take up new hobbies, try new skills, you know. there's there, It's like that um, that painting that you mentioned. There's two ways of looking at it, and often we only look at the negative side of aging. Mm, mm. So what the scientists have found is that, you know, uh, the kind of beliefs people have about old age that are recorded in kind of midlife at 36, at my age, in fact, you know, before I've, I've 
have really started experiencing any actual effects of kind of old age, that they can then predict people's health and well-being like 40 years later. Mm. Um, so their risk of Alzheimer's, their risk of um, uh, cardiovascular disease, even their kind of risk of death. So people who have positive beliefs about aging live on average for about 7.5 years longer than people who have the negative beliefs. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me throw you a slight curveball. Does this mean that quack cures work provided you believe in them? Well, I think they can certainly have the potential to do some patients some good. And, you know, there was one study, um, we still need to investigate the full kind of um, implications of this, that had shown actually when people are on kind of a long-term course of placebo pills for blood pressure, that they do have a reduced risk of mortality. So, you know, it's feasible to me that someone who is really dedicated to homeopathy maybe is getting some of those benefits. But that doesn't mean that I actually approve of that tactic, because I don't think that patients should ever be deceived about the treatments they're receiving. And I think what's exciting about the latest research on the expectation effect is that we've seen that actually, you know, you can change people's mindsets uh, completely honestly without any deceptions. Um, there's these these things called open label placebos. So that's where you actually tell people they are receiving a placebo. And you explain the placebo effect, you explain the physiological mechanisms, the mind-body connection. So actually knowledge is power in this case. And and just by kind of learning to reframe our thoughts and learning about the power of the mind to shape the body, that actually we can have all of those benefits without any deception at all. Mm-hmm. Throughout the book, you give practical exercises for combating particular expectation effects. Something that really chimed with me was was the notion of mood-induced micro-illusions to explain if I'm in a grumpy mood, I read hostility in others' faces where there is none. Mm. Tell me the practical ways of dispelling that kind of effect. Sure. So, um, you know, this has been observed in just so many um, different settings. So, you know, people who have phobias, like if you have a a fear of spiders, people actually see the spiders as being physically bigger than they really are if you have a fear of heights. Mm. And then you get on a platform, it seems a lot further to the Mm. ground than it really is. And that's because our expectations are shaping our perception. You know, if you have kind of social anxieties, like you can start to see that, you know, other people seem a lot more threatening and hostile and unfriendly. Um, Now, there are some apps that you can use that try to combat that kind of bias so they typically just try to train you to actually kind of identify like in a kind of panel of faces like the smiling faces and over time that just kind of retrains your brain to kind of recognize that actually a face maybe that seems neutral or slightly smiling is kind of friendly it's not unfriendly Um, and that's been quite uh, convincingly demonstrated in a lot of trials. Um, you know, I kind of think that actually just for me, that realisation that sometimes my brain is primed to see the negative, that I just kind of try to apply that in everyday life. So like if I know I'm in a bad mood and I I start to feel like, you know, people are being especially rude to me, 
I just kind of question myself, like, is that really true? Or is that just because, you know, I'm in a bad mood and it's, or I'm feeling anxious or depressed and I'm kind of looking for that unfriendliness around me? Is opening your mind to that possibility. And then, you know, in this case, I might kind of just make a bit more conscious effort to look around me and see that actually, you know, see if I can identify people who are actively being friendly, people who I just might not have noticed previously. Hmm. Apologies for asking the following dumb review question. I could not, though. What What was the most startling case study you came across, as opposed to, you know, a, a sort of big scientific study, a, an actual example of the person? I, I know um, the one that stuck in my head was uh, the woman that basically convinced herself she was blind. Mm, yeah, good question. I mean, I do think the example of that case study, um, it's an anonymous case study, but I call her Sarah in the book to um, protect her privacy. But yeah, where she'd been suffering from these bad headaches that had made her, you know, kind of um, photophobic. So she mm. kind of didn't, she felt really uncomfortable going into the light. And eventually, it became so bad that actually she just, um, her brain had kind of come to this assumption that it just couldn't see at all. And she became functionally blind. Um, I mean, that was really powerful to me, because you know, from talking to her doctor, it was really clear, um, hearing all of her experiences, that um, she wasn't, you know, making this up at all. Like, that would be completely unfair to her experience. And, you know, this was really a sign of the brain's prediction machine, as it's called. Um, I do love the examples of the way that our expectations can shape our perception of food as well. And that's something that um, just really sticks in my mind. You know, by changing the name of a drink, you can <laughs> make it a lot tastier. Like, I love that. There was that study where um the MIT beer isn't it right and actually you know funnily enough like I do sometimes make that for myself now and you know just for the listeners it's where the scientists put balsamic vinegar in beer and um they called it like the MIT special brew and people thought it was kind of some fancy concoction and they loved it um <laughs> but they really didn't like it if they'd been told what the special ingredient was before they <laughs> tasted it <so. laughs> um the case in the books, in the book, are always real. The theories are always based on peer-reviewed published studies. But I became acutely aware that because the book is a thesis, I, you know, I'm not saying this as an accusation, but the book puts forward a thesis. And so necessarily I didn't get any of the studies that may point the opposite way. And so I'm curious, is there an equally respected school of thought that the expectation effect is not, in fact, a real thing? Or is there broadly scientific consensus that within variation, it is something that is at work? Yeah, I would say it's the latter. You know, I think like there's too much evidence now to kind of deny that the expectation effect um, happens or that it's powerful. Um, but I do think like what we have to be aware of is that there are different it might be more or less powerful depending on the circumstances. Um, and so I could give like one example is that um, there's a lot of research on the way we reappraise kind of stress and anxiety. You know, if you're taking an exam and you feel anxious beforehand, you know, you've got a racing heart, uh, you're kind of feeling tense in your muscles. Um, that's just physiological arousal. And what the scientists found was that they could encourage people to uh, kind of reappraise those feelings not as kind of anxiety, but actually as a source of energy. Because, you know, and this is totally scientifically true, that when your mm. heart is pumping in that way, it's actually pumping more oxygen to your brain, which can increase 
and improve your performance. And so they found in their study that, you know, um, after this reappraisal, that people actually did better on these kind of graduate exams that they were taking. Mm. Which is very, very similar to the the study of the chambermaids um, encouraged to view their daily routine as a sort of exercise routine. Yeah, exactly. And then when they kind of managed to see that actually the the work they were doing that they'd they're not considered as kind of exercise before, but that could then increase the health benefits. Mm. Um, no, so you know, I think that's like a really compelling result to me. But I think it would be foolish to think that just by reappraising your feelings of anxiety, that that can always lead you to perform better in an exam. Like there's going to be boundary conditions. Um, And one of those, I would say, is just simply, it's not going to help students who haven't revised and aren't prepared for the exam. Like it's not going to work a miracle there. Um, Mm. So that's why I think the kind of scientific discussions need to be around is kind of looking at who's going to benefit, who isn't. Uh, As a kind of general reader, member of the public, I would say that if something looks like it might be useful to you and you think it might help, like try it. And if it doesn't work, you know, you don't have to try it again if you think it's counterproductive or you can Mm. leave it a while and try it again. Like I'm not saying it's a cure for everything, but I just think like, um, you know, sometimes and for me personally, it's been useful to know that there are these tools that we can try to use and that can be really effective and that there is science behind them. David, what about people who are comfortable or even delight in negativity or victimhood or catastrophizing? We all know them. Mm. Some of us might even be them. Um, How do you switch out of that pattern? Because you know, you notice a resistance in people like that, like you're trying to take away from them something that is quite comforting to them. Mm, I think you're right. I feel like, especially maybe if you've suffered from quite a few disappointments in the past, that sometimes being negative uh, can seem like you're protecting yourself from disappointment. It shields you emotionally, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think even I was... um, kind of fell into that kind of type of person in the past where I, I felt like I was almost like anesthetizing myself from future pain by kind of trying to be like negative. But what researching the expectation effect told me was that often our negative assumptions are just as irrational as the kind of overly optimistic positive assumptions. Um, and so I, I think like just adjusting my mindset in that way and, and like opening my mind to the possibility that sometimes things might be better than you expect and to kind of try to investigate how and why that might be um I think that was really powerful for me kind of finding that middle ground rather than being too pessimistic or too optimistic throughout reading the book I was uh, very conscious of that one possible interpretation albeit a negative or cynical one would be to say that if the mind is so powerful, perhaps failing to harness this aspect of it showed a lack of fortitude or a lack of character and can lead to more sort of self-beating up. I was delighted that you addressed this in the epilogue. Um, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the, the notion of self-compassion. Yeah, I mean, self-compassion is like a huge area of scientific research now. It's just this idea that actually, again, like we might think it's kind of noble to kind of beat ourselves up when we fail. Like you can actually, you know, sometimes I think we can see it as a way of like proving to ourselves that we want to do better in the future. But it's really Mm. counterproductive. And actually just being compassionate to yourself in the same way that you might be to a friend or family member and just kind of, you know, like treating yourself with that kind of gentleness where you might 
actually have to face some harsh truths, but you're still kind of basically asserting that you're a good person who wants to improve and that there are mitigating circumstances and kind of understanding the kind of whole picture. That yeah. that, that kind of whole mindset is just much healthier. So people who are self-compassionate um, do better on all kinds of measures of physical and mental health. Yeah, it's, it's become a sort of... Uh source of kudos to say and and keep repeating that I am my own harshest critic yeah. as if that's a as if that's a great thing how about being a neutral critic um yeah. rather than the harshest uh, possible critic um is the book arguing for the elimination of expectation effects or is it arguing for the replacement of negative ones with positive ones I would say the latter, so replacing negative expectation effects with positive expectation effects. Mm. And neither is kind of invalid, but it's just flipping the picture from one to the other um, that is the powerful thing there. Mm. What belief about yourself have you had to revise? Mm. Or, or, or the biggest one, as it were? Yeah, I think like uh, for me, it was about my own fitness. Um, so there's a chapter here that shows that you know, like if you kind of assume that you're just not cut out for exercise, exercise. Actually, <laughs> right, that just like um, kind of really damages your physiological performance. So the gas exchange in your lungs is less efficient. Your movements are kind of more clumsy and less efficient. You know, uh, your endurance is lower, um, all because of this kind of placebo-like expectation effect where your expectations are changing like your kind of physiology. Um And I have to say, I just had like a really bad experience of like PE or like gym classes at school. And that had always just left me feeling like um, exercise just wasn't my thing. And I tried to work out because I knew it was good for my health, but it was always like a real drag, Um, just really needlessly difficult. Um, And just changing that expectation has actually made like working out so much more pleasurable for me. You know, it's now kind of one of the highlights of my week, actually. And I think it's improved my performance physically, but also I get that kind of high that people report from exercise that I'd never experienced before. No, David Robson, it's been absolutely lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. The Expectation Effect is out in January and available to pre-order now. Remember, there's a new bunker daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday mornings. Your Start the Week supplement on Mondays, your Culture supplement on Saturday and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. It is tried to say the human mind is a mystery, but in a recent chat with a scientist friend, she said to me, it is important to always start from acknowledging what you don't know. And it is undeniable that in neurology, psychology and especially psychosomatic effects, there is much more that we do not know than what we do. It is a shame that self-help quackery has a first-mover advantage on this market, but it is all the more reason to welcome more serious, sober and scientifically respectable attempts to explore the field. It is important to expect better. This is Alex Andreu in The Bunker saying over and out. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andreu, produced by Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofronovich. An audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. Our theme music is by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.